we go. All right. We've had the pleasure of studying mission, God's mission and ours, for the last three months. And uh, we're going to move on to the Psalms here uh, next quarter. But in regard to mission, and some of the other stuff we're going to enjoy today, um, I often wonder what role suffering plays, adversity and trials. We got a glimpse of it in what Charles Spurgeon and his wife shared that night in front of the fireplace. I'm going to finish what I just started now with the kids with just a couple more sentences, and then we'll go into the scriptures. Oh, the thought when the fire of affliction draws songs of praise from us. Then indeed we are purified and our God is glorified. Perhaps some of us are like that old oak log, cold and hard and insensible. We should give forth no melodious sounds were it not for the fire which kindles around us and releases tender notes of trust in him and cheerful compliance with his will. As I mused, the fire burned and my soul found sweet comfort in the parable so strangely set forth before me. Singing in the fire. Yes, God helping us, if that is the only way to get harmony out of these hard, apathetic hearts, let the furnace be heated seven times hotter than before. A reference there to uh, Daniel chapter 3 and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Anybody else struggle with what's going on in our world today, the things that afflict our friends, our families, our loved ones? I have a friend right now who's in a hospital in Boston with her two-year-old grandchild who's been diagnosed with a terminal, a terminal condition. Well, when you think about it, life in this world can be brief, brief for all of us. So we're all terminal, except for the grace of God, right? God knows what it's like to be terminal. He knows what, it, what it's like with his son, uh, you know, walk the path uh, of his life and to Gethsemane and onto the cross. Sometimes I wonder if I would have pulled him out of that. What would have happened if I had tried to pull Joseph out of the things that he suffered at the hands of his brothers in the prison in Egypt? What would have happened to all those nations that suffered through the famine if I had rescued Joseph? and not let him go through all those experiences to prepare him to be prime minister, to be a rescuer for all those nations through the famine. What if I had chosen to rescue David and pulled him out of the fires of affliction that lasted 10 years? Saul tried to take his life, chased him all over Israel. He lived in and out of the caves, even had his own men threaten to stone him at one point. Would we have denied Israel her, her godly king? Um, you know, there are others. What if I tried to rescue Esther from being in the harem of the king there so that she wouldn't have to face that mortal enemy, right, Haman, who wanted to destroy not only her, but what? An entire nation of people. So what about you and I as we go through the things that beset us? You know, God has an overruling purpose of good, not only for us, but for others and for his glory in eternity. In the context of mission, I wonder about something that goes from Genesis to, to Revelation, and we covered it all in mission over this quarter. 
Where do you find your greatest sense of mission, your joy, your happiness, your fulfillment in blessing others and glorifying God? Let me suggest in this time of Thanksgiving and Christmas and sharing and families getting together and with friends and loved ones, um, how we can minister to people. And it revolves around eating and drinking. Do you like to eat and drink? Um, it begins in Genesis, right? You can eat of every tree of the garden, save one. Continues all the way to Revelation where we are encouraged to come and drink of the water of life freely, eating and drinking. And there are stories, lots of them in between. I mentioned one of them already with Esther, right? How is it, what was used by God through her in order to save her people? Pardon me? Trials. Trials, yes. And in the midst of those trials, what was her response? She and her maidens were going to pray, and then she was going to host a meal to show some hospitality for the king, and even that hospitality extended to the enemy. Wow. And how God used that to overrule the purposes of our adversary for purposes of saving lives. Um, how about Abraham and Sarah? Sitting in the tent in the heat of the day, who does Abraham see on the horizon? Some strangers. And what does he do? Does he say, well, Lord, I'll wait and see if they decide to come here. <laughs> no. He goes out to greet them, and he bids them, come and refresh yourself with what we can provide for you. And it was in the course of that discussion with who turned out to be? Jesus and a couple of angels attending him, who are on their way to Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, just happened to be, you think when Abraham woke up that morning, he thought, who's going to cross the path of my life today? I've been waiting so, so long for God's promises to be fulfilled. And he reaches out and invites these strangers in. And what is the blessed good news for him and Sarah as a result of showing hospitality? They not only get to wave to Jesus as he goes by, but they get to entertain Jesus in the presence in their home. And they get the good news that this time next year, they're going to have a baby boy. Wow. Um, in David's experience, there are a couple of meals worth remarking about that are remarkable, worth remarking about. David and his men are protecting all of the farmers and all of the, um, what do you call the guys that raise cattle? Um, the ranchers maybe in Israel and the shepherds. Um, they're providing protection from all the other marauding people around the area there. And at the time of the harvest, David and his men come, send some men to seek a gift, an offering of thanksgiving um, from one of the very well-to-do people in the countryside where they were protecting there. And the guy's response is, who are you that I should give you anything the message is brought back to David, and he and his men of war determine that by the end of the day, there's not going to be one person left alive in that household. And so off they go. They strap on their swords, mount up their horses, and in, be in between that time, word gets through to the brains of the outfit, the woman, the wife of the family named Abigail. And what is Abigail determined to do? She, de she determines to show some hospitality to these men. 
Not only that, she goes off by herself with the provisions to meet them on the road, and she offers herself as a willing sacrifice. Let his, my husband's sin be on me. She risks her life, and what ends up happening? The message gets through to David. The evil that he has determined against her and her entire household is done away with, and shortly thereafter, when she becomes a widow, Abigail becomes a wife of the future king of Israel. Wow. By simply determining to show some hospitality to someone who is determined to kill you and your family. Wow. Later on, after David's been on the throne for 20 years, a thought comes to him. Is there anyone left of Jonathan's family that I can show kindness to? He subdued all the enemies around Israel. There's peace. And now he remembers 20 years later. What happened 20 years before when Saul died and Jonathan died on the battlefield? What happened in Jerusalem to their families? They, well, they fled before they were going to be wiped out, right? And in the course of fleeing Jerusalem, little baby Mephibosheth gets dropped by his nursemaid. And he's crippled for his entire life thereafter. 20 years go by and David thinks, is there anyone left I can show kindness to? And one of his servants says, yeah, there's a guy. He lives in a place called Lodabar on the other side of the Jordan. Anybody know what Lodabar means? It's the place of no pasture where people who want to be forgotten go to get lost. And for 20 years now, and remember, Jonathan and Saul, they were pretty tall guys. Mephibosheth has been eking out an existence, happy to be forgotten, in Lodabar. And then they hear the horses coming. Now, if you live in a small town like that, you probably know everybody, right? And now the king's horses are coming for you. What kind of thoughts do you think cross Mephibosheth's mind? Is it time to run again to try and save my life? He's actually become a dad. He has children, but he's still crippled. And David's men show up at his house and they say, hey, Mephibosheth, the king wants to see you. Uh, well, I guess he's finally caught up with me. I, I, I'm the rightful heir to the throne of Saul and Jonathan. Maybe it's, you know, time for me to go. Kisses his wife and his children goodbye, maybe thinking for the last time, and off he goes up to Jerusalem with David's men. They bring him into the throne room. And here's the scene for you and me, friends, who have been crippled by sin in this world. God wants to bring you and I into his throne room, into his presence. Why? Why do the angels always say, fear not? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Imagine the picture now. David's men are helping this cripple walk into the throne room of Israel and David's sitting on his throne. His heart is leaping within him because of the good things he wants to share with Mephibosheth. And how does Mephibosheth respond to David? I'm a dog. What, what are you doing with me? Lord, I'm, I'm a dog. And David has to tell Mephibosheth, fear not, because from now on, what? You're going to dine at... Who eats at the king's table? His sons. And when you're all sitting around at the table, it's a little bit harder to tell who's crippled and who isn't. 
He's adopting Mephibosheth as one of his sons. He says, not only that are you going to eat at my table, but everything that was your father's, I'm going to restore to you. And you're not going to have to farm it yourself. You're not going to have to take care of that property yourself. My men are going to take care of that, and you're going to enjoy everything that's provided there for you and your family for the rest of your life. The king of the universe wants to invite you and I into his presence and to share the wonderful good news of a life without end, right? That we get to enjoy with him. Again, hospitality there. Um, in Matthew, Jesus takes his little band of brothers on a road trip. I think it's about a 50-mile journey to the Mediterranean, to the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. And who greets Jesus over there? There's a mother whose little girl is sick. Possessed, yeah, that's right. She's, her, her daughter's possessed by a demon and she recognizes her only hope. And they go back and forth and it eventually comes down to Jesus telling her, it's not right to give the food for the children to the dogs. This is after he's rejected her entreaties two or three times already. But because of a love of a mother, she's persistent and she will not be denied. And she says, truth, Lord, but even the dogs eat what? The crumbs. the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She's willing to be a dog to even enjoy that little bit of hospitality on behalf of her, her child. And Jesus responds, great is your faith, right? Do you know what constitutes great faith, friends? Jesus mentions it twice. He commends the centurion's faith. He says, in, in my 30 some odd years on earth, I haven't seen faith like yours. Not even among my family, not among all of Israel. And then he commends this woman's faith, great is your faith. They both came to intercede, right, priests, on behalf of someone else. How about you and I? What a privilege it is for you and I to go in prayer, to intercede on behalf of someone else. Um, remember Elijah and the widow of Zarephath? She's down to her last meal. And what does the man of God ask? Well, make a little for me. <laughs> okay, I'll make it and then we'll die. Okay. What happens when you and I give our, our last, best uh, gift to, to God? Can he, will he, won't he bless it? not just for us, but for others as well. Here we are, how many millennia later, telling her story. Um, how about Elisha and his servant when the Assyrians came to come and take him captive back to Assyria, probably to kill them? What was the command of Elisha when they, they brought the Assyrian army back into Jerusalem to the king of Israel? The king said, what should we do, kill them? Elisha's answer, God's answer was, no, show them hospitality, give them food and water. And what happened for the next 20 years? The Assyrians went home and they never came back. Wow, for an enemy. How about Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus hears that this holy man actually has as one of his inner circle a guy just like me when I've been excluded from my entire professional life from anything to do with friends, family, right? I don't know if anybody likes paying taxes, but how do you like paying taxes to a trader who works for the occupying 
force. And now Jesus says what? In the midst of the parade, he stops the parade, and he says what? Zacchaeus, today I'm going to eat at your house. And Zacchaeus makes a feast. And in the course of sharing that hospitality with Jesus, you know, Zacchaeus was short of stature. He had to climb a tree. And it says, it's very specific in that story, that when Jesus came to the place where Zacchaeus was up in the tree, could this place here today be the place for you and me, where you and I will get to see Jesus for who he really is? We'll get to invite him back to our home, to break bread with him, and to share the good news of what he's done in forgiving us, his mercy, and his grace with anyone else who will listen. I, uh, I had not planned to be here today. I've been working on a message to deliver in January for you folks that's going to be about Zacchaeus, but I got a message from Peru last night at 7 p.m. from our good sister Laura reminding me that I was supposed to be here today. Laura, wherever you are, God bless you and Josh and your family. Um, so come back sometime in January and uh, you'll hear more about Zacchaeus here. But I'm hoping and praying that this can be the place for you and me today. We all know about Jesus feeding the thousands. Uh, Uncle Simon's feast, what an amazing thing happened there for him and his little niece, Mary, Mary Magdalene. Simon finally comes face to face with what he's done and becomes a self-sacrificing servant uh, of Jesus after that. Um, when Lazarus dies, Martha and Mary are having to show hospitality to all the mourners. And in the midst of their sorrow and their sadness and their suffering, the loss of their brother, um, Martha comes out to see Jesus. And what is her confession? In the midst of that pain and suffering, she is able to see, behold, understand, realize, and now confess that Jesus really is the Messiah. There aren't a lot of people that make that kind of confession in the, the New Testament. Yeah. Um, how about those two disciples on the road to Emmaus going down the hill after the crucifixion and unbeknownst to them because they disregarded the testimony of the women, the resurrection of their, all their hopes and dreams. And so they're joined by this stranger as they're going down the hill from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and as their spiritual experience is going downhill as well, they have no idea of who's walking with them until what? They sit down to eat and to share a meal and share some hospitality with the stranger. And it's in the blessing and the sharing of this hospitality that they realize Jesus has been with them the whole time. Wow, now I gotta go back, now they got good news, now they gotta run back up the hill. Uh, to let all the disciples know that he is, in fact, risen. Um, there's stories about uh, breaking bread and the wonderful things that happen and sharing a harvest and a meal with Naomi and Ruth, the Moabitess, um, the woman at the well forgets to show Jesus some hospitality by giving him a cup of water. She goes back to tell everyone in her town the good news who she's met. There's Levi Matthew's Supper, in which several things happen that aren't always put together. 
Levi Matthew, the tax collector, the unclean tax collector, is throwing a feast for all of his buds. The religious leaders are all standing outside his house, tempting people as they come and go. Uh, and Jesus responds. And then one person in particular shows up that has to walk right by them in front of everybody, goes into this unclean man's house, gets on his knees and worships Jesus because his little girl is on her deathbed back at home. Jairus has counted the cost. You'd think, you know, this guy's devoted his life to the service of God and to being a blessing to his community. And now, does, it, does all of that, his family, his education, his profession, his connections, does any of that avail him of anything in this hour of great need? When you and I reach our hour of great need, are you and I willing to count the cost go on our knees to Jesus, and in faith, right, uh, welcome whatever mercy, whatever grace he wants to share with us at that time. Um, I bet Jairus didn't, didn't regret doing it the next day when he was walking down the street holding his little girl's hand. Um, who knows what it, what it would have cost him after that. Um, Jesus himself makes breakfast for the disciples on the beach right, after they determined to, to go fishing after all their, their hopes and, um, have been dashed. So, um, what are we to make of all these examples of hospitality? I know there are a bunch more throughout the scriptures, but it's a common theme in the context of mission that we've been studying here. What is all of it if it's not done with love? In ministering to my family so often I find out that what I have to offer isn't wanted or it's not needed for whatever reason the gifts that I have just aren't appropriate for whatever is going on all right all right, all right God well what is it then he says well God God tells me you can love them just love them without complete understanding you can still love them completely without complete understanding and so that gets me back to the verse that I've shared with you before, the one that I like above all others. It's a 26-word parade of hope, maybe the greatest sentence ever penned by a human hand, certainly one of the, I will say, the greatest promise, John 3.16. I was going to have the kids recite it for us today. I'm sure they all know it by heart, but for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It can begin here and now, friends, can't it? Eternity, heaven can begin here and now. We can experience it, and not just for ourselves, but we can share it with others in blessing to them and in, in glory to God. Now, you know that that promise has my favorite word in it. It's whosoever. So if you and I would ever try to limit God's promise and his ability to keep his promise, he has one word, whosoever, right? It's unlimited. It's for everyone. Praise the Lord. And in that whosoever promise, there are three clauses. I've shared them with you in the past. Anybody remember? Any of, whosoever means however, however he finds us, he welcomes us. Do you remember the, the parable Jesus tells of the rich man and Lazarus? 
Lazarus is hoping to enjoy a little hospitality from the rich man. He sits at, at, at his gate, right? Waiting for some crumbs from the master's table. Don't know that he got, gets any. And in sudden drama, the curtain of death drops on both of them. And then eternal destinies are revealed. Lazarus, who was rejected, neglected, infected, right? The dogs were licking his sores, had no family we know of, no possessions to speak of. He's now in the bosom of Abraham, and the rich guy has no longer in the lap of luxury, right? And now he needs everything. You know, so often, and again, my message in January will be about reversals of fortune. Jesus tells the stories, and so often it happens in the, the Bible, about re, re, sudden reversals of fortune. The people that appear to be in are actually out, and the people that we think are out are actually in. Our perception of reality might not be 2020, but for the grace of God and the Holy Spirit, right? The eye salve that God wants to give us. However God finds us, he welcomes us. Uh, another important discovery in that whosoever policy is that Wherever God finds us, he welcomes us. I think of the prodigal son, and I'll call him the prodigal dad, right? The prodigal son gives up on his father's love, says, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance. I'm off. And he goes into a far country over Fool's Hill. I've been there. I can sort of relate. I don't know about you. Um, and he wastes his living, right, uh, with a riotous life until finally what? He's not only feeding the pigs, he's living with them, and he's so hungry, he's literally starving to death that he's willing to what? Eat the pods, Eat the pods that he's feeding the pigs. Not a recommended type of employment for a good Jewish boy. So finally, instead of swallowing the pods, he swallows his pride. He comes to his senses in all that adversity and the flames of that affliction. He comes to his senses. He says, wow. You know, the gardener who lives in the garage, lives over the garage in my father's house, has it better than I. I'm going to go home. And on his way home, he's working on his prayer of repentance, right? And he doesn't even notice it, but his dad is on the porch, scanning the horizon every day, hoping and praying that his son will return. And sure enough, he finally does. And before he can finish confessing his sin and asking for forgiveness, what does the father do? He throws his arms around him, welcomes him back, puts the robe on, on him and the ring on his finger, saying that you're not just going to be a servant, you're a family. Is that how God welcomes you and I? Yes, praise the Lord. We are family. We are twice his, right, by creation and by redemption. I like to share this in the context of identity theft, right? We have a new identity in Christ. In Adam, we have an identity, right, as sinful fallen human beings. But in Christ, the second Adam, we have a new identity. In Christ, right, God can treat us, what's the word, justification, just as if we had never sinned? Because Jesus has paid the entire penalty. That leads to a lifetime of sanctification and finally, glorification with God. And lastly, the last clause in the whosoever policy God takes us whenever he finds us. And this gets to the 11th hour grace here. Whenever God finds us. 
So let's read this, and then we'll wrap it up here. Whenever God finds us in Matthew chapter 20. You know, this is the time of gift giving. And uh, you know that little manger in Bethlehem was probably the first king-sized bed ever, right? Fit for a king. Um, we look forward to giving and receiving gifts. You ever find something? I'm convinced I know who invented trail mix. Those of you that have young children, have you picked up the car seat in back yet? You know what you find under there? <laughs> I think I'd, I'd get rid of that Band-Aid, I'd eat that, yeah. Um, where was I going with that thought? Um, well, I know, but whenever God finds us, I, I got detoured there. All right, so there's a landowner that goes out. He goes out early in the morning, 6 o'clock. I need workers. Takes them out into the field, and they agree for a wage of a dollar a day in modern English. He comes back at 9 o'clock in the morning. I need more workers. All right, go out in the fields, dollar a day. Comes back at noon and at 3, and then at 5 o'clock, the 11th hour, he comes back again. I need somebody to go work for one more hour. Friends, are you and I those 11th hour workers? Are we not in the 11th hour of this world's history? More than that, more than that. I've told you this story before about my friend Max. Grew up in a Christian family, his dad was a great Christian guy, but his uncle, his dad's brother, Billy, wasn't. He was just a, a good guy, hardworking guy his whole life, but cancer finally got him, and time was short, so Max went to see his uncle Billy. And he took a copy of this whoever policy to his Uncle Billy. And he, he found him in the big lazy boy sitting at home in the 11th hour of his life, in the 59th minute. He said, Uncle Billy, time is short. Do you want to be with Jesus? And as Uncle Billy opened his eyes for the first time in a while, he said, yeah, I think so. And Max, bless his heart, God bless him, pressed the point even further. He goes, do you want to be sure? And his Uncle Billy said yes. So they prayed a prayer to God, to the Father, through Jesus, for grace. And Uncle Billy closed his eyes and died shortly after that. So my question for you is, you and I who have been hoping and praying for who knows, friends, family, loved ones, even enemies for who knows how long, dare we hope, can we really believe that people that accept Jesus in the last moments of their life receive the same grace that lifelong servants do? I would say amen. Won't it be fun to walk through those pearly gates and see who you and I are rubbing shoulders with? I bet some of them will be looking, me, looking at me with a surprise, <laughs> knowing me from, <laughs> from way back when. But here's the punchline of that parable that Jesus tells tells to illustrate this very point. The landowner says, am I not allowed to do what I want with what belongs to me? That's the Scott Sassoni translation of the, the King James there. 
The punchline is they all got the same, right? So friends, let's take heart. As long as there's a pulse, as long as they're, they're breathing, they're alive, there's hope. Let's, uh, let's not, uh, let's like that woman, that Syrophoenician woman, persevere and persist against every maybe outward evidence of whatever reality we're seeing that we can experience that truth as it is in Jesus and experience that love, the light of that love that dispels the darkness, even in the 11th hour. Can you say amen? Yeah. All right.